basic story is very familiar. The Greeks were determined to conquer the independent city of Troy, but they were having great difficulty. They laid siege to that city for 10 long years with no success. Finally, they came up with a new strategy. They constructed a huge wooden horse. They hid a select group of men inside that horse. They rolled it up near the walls of the city. And then they pretended to sail away, giving up on the siege. It had lasted too long. The Trojans, with more curiosity than caution, pulled that horse into the city as a token of victory over their enemies. And you know the story that night. The Greek soldiers crept out of the horse, opened the gates of the city for the Greek army which had sailed back under cover of darkness. And the city of Troy was taken, and the war was over. The strength of Troy's defense was breached by curiosity and deception. We may be well prepared for a direct attack, but we may be totally unprepared for an unexpected diversion. Another story comes to us from World War II. The French had faced invasion from Germany during World War I, and they were determined never to let that happen again to their country. So they built a line of concrete fortifications of obstacles and weapons in the 1930s on the borders with Italy and Switzerland and Germany and Luxembourg. The Maginot Line was impervious to bombings and tank fire. There was seemingly no way that the German army could breach that line and invade France again. So what did the Germans do? They ignored that line completely, and they invaded France from the Low Countries and the Ardennes Forest, which the French thought was absolutely too rough terrain for any invading force to come through. Meanwhile... A decoy force sat opposite the Maginot Line, the German decoy force, to occupy the attention of the French and keep their eyes focused in the wrong place. Major problem of the Maginot Line was simply it gave them a false sense of security. We're okay. Have we had Trojan horses and Maginot Lines in the recent history of Seventh-day Adventism? I submit that we have had exactly the same problem of a curiosity with what's out there and a false sense of security which has allowed us to be successfully invaded while our guard was down. Now, Adventist truths have been attacked from the very beginning of this church, way in its very beginnings. And we have prepared our defenses carefully to meet those attacks a frontal assault. We were able to respond very effectively to objections to our doctrinal beliefs. We knew how to do that. We had well-defined responses to Catholicism and liberal Protestantism. So the master strategist Satan decided he would do it a different way. He would attract our curiosity. He would lower our sense of danger. He devised another Trojan horse especially for the Seventh-day Adventist Church.
You see, we're not the only church who believes in the absolute authority of the Word of God and the soon coming of Jesus to destroy Satan's rule over planet Earth. Our evangelical friends seem to be so much like us in personal salvation by God's unmerited grace through faith, a strong drive for soul winning. We can learn so much from them in growth of churches, in very attractive worship methods, and the retention of our youth. We have fought the obvious enemy, which is worldly standards and lack of faith and liberalism for many years. But we have been blind to the equally dangerous enemy of conservative evangelicalism. So our curiosity and our sense of doctrinal security allowed us to let this Trojan horse of evangelicalism right into the heart of our city. And my friends, the danger for us is as great as for the people of Troy, which is the total destruction of Seventh-day Adventism as the remnant church of prophecy. So let's take a very close look at this Trojan horse that is absolutely sapping the life of Adventism right now. What is the heart of this well-defined system of beliefs? There are five major issues at the root of these Gospels. Number one, involuntary sin. Now that's the belief that all become sinners simply by being born with a fallen nature. Number two, the unfallen nature of Christ. Now that's the belief that the humanity that Christ took upon himself was the sinless nature of Adam as it was before the fall or a hybrid view that Christ's nature was partly fallen and partly unfallen. Number three, salvation by justification alone. Now that's the belief that the ground of the Christian salvation includes justifying righteousness only as distinct from the transforming, empowering righteousness of regeneration and sanctification. Those are only fruits of salvation, not causes. Number four, justification as exclusively declarative and not transformative. Now that's the belief that Justifying righteousness only declares a believer righteous. It never makes that believer righteous. And number five, the imperfectibility of Christian character, and that is simply the belief that even through the imparted divine strength of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, perfect obedience to the divine law remains impossible as long as we live on this earth. Now, as we examine more carefully four books that were published this last summer, that will be tomorrow afternoon, we will learn that these are exactly the beliefs of those four books. In light of these beliefs of the Christian gospel, the standard Christian gospel, it becomes imperative that we have and understand the true gospel. And so, following is going to be just a very brief response to these five points. It is not going to be exhaustive or complete in any way, but just a short little summary. 
We'll go first to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Ellen White calls this the clear definition of sin, the true definition of sin, and eight times she says it is the only definition of sin. In commenting directly on this verse, she says that it means to willfully transgress the law of God in thought or word or action. How about James chapter 4, verse 17? Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. To him who knows. And then there is John 9, 41. Jesus said to them, these are the Pharisees, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, we see Therefore your sin remaineth. So the sin for which we are condemned and the sin for which we will be lost for all eternity is never involuntary and it is never a state of birth. Number two, Jesus Christ and his nature. Desire of Ages, page 49. It would have been an almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin, like every child of Adam. I think that's every one of us. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. What these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life. So as best I can tell, Christ did not exempt himself from our nature. He took our nature so that he could be tempted just like we are tempted from both outside and from within our own nature. Numbers 3 and 4 we'll look at together, and we're going to look at Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 394. Having made us righteous, notice carefully, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. Justification can never be limited to a declaration alone. It is always, always a transforming process. And then number five, that imperfectibility of, of character that we can never possibly overcome. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Is that higher than our highest human thought can reach? And yet it's right there in Scripture, every thought in captivity. In Heavenly Places, page 146, please notice every word here. Everyone, that means everyone, who by faith obeys God's commandments will, not may, not must, not even should, will reach the condition of sinlessness in which Adam lived before his transgression. And I say that one of Satan's most accepted lies 
is that perfect obedience to God is impossible as long as we have a fallen nature. That's one that resonates with our hearts much too well. Now, it is very important to remember something right here. This maturity is not a requirement for salvation. That's demonstrated very clearly by the thief on the cross. Remember the story? He certainly was not mature in the sense we're talking about it here. What he was, he surrendered his life to Christ in faith. He was willing to be and do whatever God asked him to do. And that's what God asks of us if we want to be saved. Here is what this last number five Perfection of character is all about. Desire of ages, 671. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. It's not our honor. It's not even our salvation that is involved here. But it is God's name and his character. He has promised that he will perfect his people. Can he do it? That's what's at stake. He's made a promise. Christ's object lessons, 148. The honor of his throne is staked for the fulfillment of his word unto us. You know what? When God promises something, he puts his name behind it. He puts his government behind it. His throne was at stake when Christ came down to this earth. And his throne will again be at stake in the last people who live before he comes again. Now we must remember Satan's challenge against God and his law. Signs of the Times, January 16, 1896. Satan declared that it was impossible for the sons and daughters of Adam to keep the law of God. And thus he charged upon God a lack of wisdom and love. If they, that's you and me, could not keep the law, then there was fault with the lawgiver. Notice carefully that Satan's charge is clearly leveled against fallen man's ability to keep God's law. So, God has devised a response to Satan's challenge, which will be so clear that not one question will be left unanswered for the rest of eternity. No objection will ever be raised after this final demonstration. Now, Revelation 7, 1 to 3 says that the winds of destruction are going to be held until God's people are sealed. So what is this seal? That is the most important part of how to be ready for Jesus to come. Faith I Live by 287. It is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. In our minds and in our hearts, our attitudes, our spirit, and our loyalty. In a very special vision that hardly anyone really has read very often, Ellen White saw the angels of Revelation 7 just about ready to let the winds go in her lifetime. It's in early writings, page 38. While their hands were loosening and the four winds were about to blow, the merciful eye of Jesus gazed on the remnant that were not sealed. And he raised his hands to the Father and pleaded with him that he had spilled his blood for them. Then another angel was commissioned to fly swiftly to the four angels and bid them hold until the servants of God were sealed. 
So the reason Christ did not come during her lifetime, she was hoping he would. And the reason he has not come in our lifetime is God's mercy. He will not send his remnant into the cataclysmic events of planet Earth just before he comes while they're unprepared. He's too merciful for that. And the only way they can be prepared is by receiving the seal of God. The only way. These people that will live just before Jesus comes have the most incredible challenge ever given to a church in all of human history. They are facing the close of probation and Satan's last desperate attempt to destroy God and his plan of salvation. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 746. If there ever was a people in need of constantly increasing light from heaven, it is the people that in this time of peril, God has called to be the depositaries of his holy law and to vindicate his character before the world. If that can ever happen, it demands a full understanding of the plan of salvation and our place in the final conflict, completing that plan. Desire of Ages 763. Every character will be fully developed and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Oh, did you notice that? God does the vindicating here. We do not. But he does it in the characters of his people. The fully mature development of both the righteous and the wicked is necessary for the final vindication of God's character and his law. When all can see clearly the difference. Well, what is this Trojan horse that has insinuated itself into the very heart of Adventism? We can trace its beginnings in the United States to a new-to-Protestantism method of interpretation of the prophecy, which is called futurism. It actually was begun by Catholic scholars to deflect the Protestant identification of the Catholic Church as Babylon and the Pope as Antichrist. All the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation were placed off in the future with some unknown yet being who will be Antichrist. Now, in the Protestant version, the 70th week of Daniel 9 is also placed in the future. The Old Testament prophecies of the restoration of the Jewish nation would be literally fulfilled. The temple would actually be rebuilt. Armageddon would be the final battle between Jesus and the heathen. Also included, of course, is that secret rapture of the faithful, so they will not have to go through the horrors of Armageddon. Now, these beliefs are shared by a number of conservative Protestant churches who absolutely believe in the authority of Scripture and the soon coming of Christ, and they are much interested in evangelism and church growth. All of these are shared by Adventism. There are a few more beliefs of this group of people that I'll just mention briefly. The atonement was completed at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, everything was settled, nothing more needed to be determined. 
The thousand years of the millennium that's coming up ahead of us is when Jesus will come down to this earth and set up his reign on this earth to rule over the nations for a thousand years. The immortal soul goes immediately to heaven at death in spirit form. Hell is God roasting sinners in hellfire for all eternity. And then, of course, that Sabbath commandment really isn't that important. Those are some of the beliefs of these groups. Now, the interesting thing about this movement in the United States in the last 40 years, it has morphed into the political arena. During the early 1800s, there were several parties, political parties in the United States, which kind of settled into two parties, the Whigs and the Democrats. The Whig Party disintegrated pretty soon and was replaced by the Republican Party. And of course, these are our two parties today. But the positions of these parties have changed a great deal with time so that our parties as we know them today are not even close to what they were 50 or 100 years ago. Today, these parties have become so polarized, as you well know, that labeling and demonization have become the norm. If you don't agree with my party, you are the enemy. The evangelical movement of today has immersed itself in modern power politics. In the 1950s, religion and politics began to form some alliances. Billy Graham and other evangelicals began to promote anti-communism. One nation under God became a catchphrase during those years. The religious leaders began to promote free enterprise and big business. They talked about the United States as a Christian nation. They even proposed a constitutional amendment protecting school prayer in the public schools. As evangelical theology has become increasingly linked with politics, an interesting thing has taken place. Since evangelicals are primarily conservative in their beliefs, their political leadings became exclusively conservative. And evangelical theology began to take second place to conservative politics. Evangelicals saw conservative politics as their only mechanism to effect moral change in America since our society has been so damaged by godlessness and lawlessness with absolute truth being replaced by whatever works for me and the boundaries of sexuality being hopelessly blurred today. So evangelical conservatism joined itself permanently to conservative politics as the only way to defeat moral degeneracy and save the United States for that promised future of Jesus coming down upon this earth to set up his kingdom right here. Since Adventists share many of these concerns about America with evangelicals, it was very easy for us to agree with them about conservative politics being the only way to nullify the corrosive influence of liberal religious beliefs combined with liberal politics. Once again, our defenses against liberalism outside of our walls allowed us to ignore the dangerous Trojan horse of conservative religion and politics linked together invading our minds and our churches. 
If only, friends, if only we would have followed Ellen White's wise counsel to bury political questions. We might not have opened the doors to the Trojan horse so widely. Suddenly, a new issue took center stage in the religious evangelical alliance with politics, and that was abortion. Now, I'm going to make it very clear here that Adventism does not believe in abortion on demand as some kind of a substitute for birth control. I'm talking here about how abortion became part of politics. In 1968, even Christianity Today, which is an evangelical magazine, refused to call abortion sinful. In 1971, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention allowed abortion under certain defined circumstances, which was reaffirmed in 1974 and 1976. But in 1979, opposition to abortion became the rallying cry of evangelicals due to the influence of a Catholic activist who coined the term the moral majority and saw the effectiveness of abortion in defeating certain liberal, prominent politicians in 1978. This all resulted in what we know today as the religious right and the Catholic Evangelical Alliance, which believes that morality can and should be a matter for political legislation. In 1984, a New York governor said, Are we asking government to make criminal what we believe to be sinful because we ourselves can't stop committing the sin? The failure here is not Caesar's. The failure is our failure, the failure of the entire people of God. And very soon, voting blocks became more important and more effective than the power of persuasion. Make no mistake here. The use of civil power by apostate Christianity is making coercion a substitute for conversion and will lead directly to the formation of the image to the beast. We're dealing here with issues that we have not even begun to consider as carefully as we should. I think it's significant that in August of 2018... A state-like dinner was held at the White House for 100 evangelical leaders to celebrate evangelical leadership in America, especially in politics. And I think it's well for us to remind ourselves here that religious liberty means two different things for Adventists and for evangelicals. Adventists want to allow freedom of conscience for all, especially minority religious beliefs. We advocate freedom for Catholics, for Protestants, for Buddhists, for Muslims, and even atheists. But evangelicals and conservative Catholics advocate liberty for their version of Christianity, since they believe that is the only way of salvation, while other beliefs are heathen and do not deserve that kind of protection. The same people who stand the strongest against abortion and for moral values are the same people who want to unite with Catholicism and restore Christian dominionism that will trample on religious freedom for minorities. And so evangelical theology has been transformed into evangelical politics. 
and is the greatest danger our Church has ever faced from the outside. And I say how tragic it is that evangelical theology has penetrated so deeply into Adventist theology that we are promoting it at the highest scholarly levels and marginalizing those who believe in genuine Adventism as fanatics and fringe groups. This is the Trojan horse that is fascinating Adventism right now. And we allow it in our midst at the peril of our existence. We have formed our Maginot line against the attacks of the enemy. And Satan has bypassed our carefully prepared defenses by appearing to be our friend and ally, since we are also opposed to things like abortion and homosexuality. We are being dragged into the muck of political involvement today. And we don't seem to realize that evangelical message and evangelical politics are broken cisterns. They are false prophets. Even Babylon, with their hands stretching across the gulf to form the image to the beast. Can we really trust and ally with a movement because it supports a couple of strands of truth, as it does? The army outside the walls is hiding inside the horse while we sleep on. We desperately, desperately need to return to our Adventist pioneers who refused to get involved with party politics. They did stand for moral issues like temperance and religious liberty. They opposed errors in society like slavery. They even defied immoral laws like the Fugitive Slave Act. But they never supported the political parties of their day. They refused to get involved in the dirt of power politics. My friends, we are here for two purposes. We are not citizens of the United States primarily. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are here to receive the seal of God and put the final nail in Satan's coffin of lies about God and to prepare our hearts to be ready for the latter rain and to take the truth of God to every corner of planet Earth so that Matthew 24, 14 can finally be fulfilled. And God will finally, finally be able to say, Here are they that keep my commandments. May that day come very soon.